Revelation 20, if you're new with us, we've been making our way through this incredible book, doing the best we can. John says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. If you've ever heard the eschatological debates about amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. If you've ever been asked, what are you, amill, premill, postmill? All of those debates revolve around this passage. This is the only passage in the entire Bible that speaks about the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ. I've certainly shared the jokes around here, right? Corey Tin Boone's answer, I love it. When she's asked, what's your position on the millennium? She said, that is a preposterous question. That's an, a preposterous question. I like that. Of course, the famous answer, hey, are you pre-post, a millennial? Well, I'm, I'm pan-millennial. It's all going to pan out in the end. That answer is attractive, because it's right, is it not? (laughs) Indeed, it will all pan out in the end. I'm in favor of believers being pan-millennialists, as long as they're not the kind that go, I'm not even going to think about that kind of stuff. It's just going to all pan out in the end. I personally appreciate a little bit more than that that we would read the Scriptures and study the Scriptures and ponder the Scriptures and pray and talk about these things and the like, appreciating the other views and then maybe making a decision. I joked with a couple guys last week, my plan this Sunday is to share the big views and then plant my feet squarely in midair, right? This is an in-house debate among Bible-believing Christians. 
I grew up in a time, I think as many of you did, especially if you were in, involved in the evangelical Christian world, it seemed to me that while it was an in-house family debate, it could get kind of heated. I grew up in a dispensational premillennialism that thought those mills did not take the Bible seriously, which is just not true. My buddy Justin Pfeiffer back there, our resident amillennialist. These are good men and good women reading the Scriptures, believing the Scriptures, but maybe seeing them and understanding them and interpreting them for their own good reasons differently. You know, I've made it to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation without showing a single prophecy chart on the screen. Isn't that amazing? I'm actually going to show some this morning. Oh, some of y'all think, cut his pay. Some of y'all think, give him a raise, right? Finally, we're going to get a chart. You're going to get four charts today. Let me share with you, I think, the four big ideas. Try to be kind with all of them. See how far we get. We'll close in prayer and go eat Mexican food somewhere, all right? Show me the first one up there. Maybe, there we go. Uh, is that the first one? It's all right if it is. Yeah, maybe it is. Ah, millennialism or realized millennialism. The ah negates it, right? No millennium. That's a misnomer. All millennialists do not read Revelation 20 and go, oh, that's not going to happen. They understand it to be realized that we are in the millennial reign of Christ right now. That Jesus died and he was buried and he resurrected in power and he ascended and sat down at the Father's right hand. And from there, he is reigning. He gave his spirit to his people, and he reigns over all things. And so they would see Revelation 20 as another look at the events that have been being described in the book of Revelation. We'll get to premillennialism in a second. Premillennialists see Revelation 19 and the second coming of Jesus. And then Revelation 20, the millennial reign of Christ, and they see it as successive, one thing after another. We've already seen, though, I think, in the book of Revelation that, that portions of it, at least, can be interpreted as recursive, where John shows us some things, and then he'll show us some things again from a different angle. In the amillennialist position, the realized millennium position believes that's the way Revelation 20 is meant to be read. That John has shown us some things, and now he's showing us from a different angle. And so Christ dies and rises and ascends and sits at his Father's right hand. And when he did that, Satan was bound and imprisoned. 
and that Satan is unable to deceive the nations. That's what John says, right? Bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Many have looked at amillennialists and said, how can you say that? The Bible clearly says that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, among other things. And the amillennialist, the realized millennialist, would look and say, listen, what does the text say? It says that he is bound so that he won't deceive the nations any longer. It doesn't mean that he, he's not still around to persecute the church, to tempt the church, and to do those sorts of things, but his ability to deceive the nations has been significantly weakened, if not defeated, with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And thus, they would say, what happened after Jesus died, rose, and ascended, and empowered his people through his Spirit? The Word of God went to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth and spread now the world over. At the end of the millennial reign, and we must say they don't understand it to be a literal thousand-year period, but a long period of time, Satan will be released for a short time, deceive the nations for the war, but they will be devoured by fire at the second coming of Jesus. This is another look at Revelation chapter 19. And the war that we saw hinted at, or not even hinted at, in Revelation 16, talked about in Revelation 17, seen here in Revelation 19, they would see this war that's described in Revelation 20 as another take, another angle of that same battle of Armageddon when Jesus comes again. Okay? The second coming of Christ, he defeats Satan's feeble attempt, casts Satan into the lake of fire, and sets up the great white throne judgment, which we'll try to look at next week. All right? There's a little bit for you at least. Okay? That's amillennialism, a realized millennialism. Historic premillennialism. You'll see here, let's see if this thing works. That, there's the second coming of Jesus, and then the millennial reign of Christ. Historic premillennialism, it's, it's called that because proponents of this view say, listen, this is, this is the position of the early church in the decades after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the historic position. Now, others would say, well, that's not the only position that was held by the early church. But in terms of premillennialists of the early church, this was the position. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, this period of time that we are now in, they would look that in the future there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. But you'll notice there is no pre-trib rapture of the church. The second coming of Jesus and then the establishment of the millennial reign. And so Satan is bound at the second coming of Jesus. He is not um, able to do his thing during this millennial reign. 
But then at the end, Satan is released for a short time, deceives the nations for the war, but they're devoured by fire. That's what we read about here in verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the sea. So in millennial, premillennialism, Jesus comes premillennial. Here would be the battle of Armageddon talked about in Revelation 16 and seemingly described in Revelation 19. But then this is a separate battle, a different battle at the end of the millennium. When Satan gathers these nations together at the end of the millennium and fire comes down from heaven and, can, and devours them. I love that little verse. I mean, it's just gone. Jesus just breathes and his enemies fall before him. Dispensational premillennialism came along a little bit later within church history, late 1800s and into the 1900s, and has been probably the most popular position within American evangelicalism. And you'll see it's almost exactly the same, at least on this chart, as historic premillennialism, but dispensational premillennialism sees a sharper distinction between the nation of Israel and the New Testament church. And so there's a burden within dispensational premillennialism to get the church, if you will, get the church out of the way before God begins again his work with the nation of Israel. And thus, a pre-trib rapture of the church. The key text on this would be 1 Thessalonians 4, that they would describe as the rapture of the church. Others would say, no, the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage is, is simply describing the second coming with different details related to it, okay? This was the position I've told you a thousand times. This was, I, I grew up dispensational premillennialism. I was trained in dispensational premillennialism. But along the way, in my own personal study, I, I personally, I couldn't, I just couldn't see that as clearly as others were making it out to be. And I began to see in my own personal convictions that there's, that I don't think there's a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. I don't think the church replaces Israel. I think the church is the fulfillment, if you will, of Israel. And so I think with what the New Testament authors are doing, with some of the Old Testament texts that they are working with, is not drawing such a, a sharp distinction between Israel and the church, but in fact that the church is the fulfillment of these promises of God throughout the Old Testament. One more, post-millennialism. This particular, as I understand it, position did not, was not very popular, still is not very popular, though it is, if you will, making a comeback. It seemingly was the position of Jonathan Edwards and, and, and those early folks coming across 
as America was getting going with the hopes of America being a, a, a shining city on a hill and that through evangelism, um, the world was going to be Christianized. It's, it's, it, it's a bad word to, to say, but, but post-millennialism gets the reputation of being the most optimistic of these millennial positions. What that says about the others, though, is that they're pessimistic. And how can you be pessimistic about the coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom to reign forevermore, whether you're amillennial or premillennial or postmillennial? But, but it gets that reputation because postmillennialism believes that at the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, spirit gift of Christ, Satan was bound and imprisoned. And that for the last 2,000 years and, and for however long the Lord would tarry, Satan is unable to deceive the nations. And that the gospel has gone out throughout the world, is growing, and will, through the preaching of the gospel, the discipling of people, and the planting of churches, will, quote, usher in a golden age of the gospel. That Christ's great commission will be successful. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so they understand the, the millennium to be a time in which the gospel has had great success the world over, and they anticipate that God will do an even greater work in bringing many, many more people to faith in Jesus, and that, that the world, if you will, will be Christianized. That would be described as the millennium, and then Jesus will come post-millennial. Again, it was kind of put on the shelf for a long, long time. The First World War, the Second World War, um, the Great Depression had a lot to do with some of that optimism getting flushed out. And so you didn't see many post-millennialists. Um, there's been a revival of post-millennialism in the last 10 or 20 years. They're, they've got their strong proponents starting to have conferences like never before and the like. And so it's making a comeback, if you will. So what are you? Are you an all-mill? Are you pre-mill? Pre you post-mill? you pan-mill? It's all going to pan out in the end. I think we need to at least step back and say there's so much agreement among these different takes. These are not positions of faithful Christians over here and unfaithful Christians over here. Christians over here who believe the Bible, but Christians over here who don't believe the Bible. That's not it. These are men and women who believe the Bible, who are coming to the text of Scripture and trying to understand what indeed does the Bible teach. But if you shake them all out, they all believe that Jesus Christ is coming again in great power, in great glory. 
and that those who by the grace of God have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, that they will spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And those who have continued in their rebellion and sadly have not taken hold of Jesus Christ, that they will be judged for their deeds. And as we'll see next week, cast into the lake of fire forevermore. All of these hold to the same biggies. One of my friends tweeted this week, all brothers and sisters of goodwill, despite their millennial position, confess that Christ is reigning now, at least in some way, will return to judge the living and the dead, will conquer every last enemy, and receive his glorified church into the consummated kingdom forever. Amen? Amen. Alan Bandy's professor of New Testament, Oklahoma Baptist, he said this, When studying Revelation and eschatology, it is all too easy to lose sight of the call of Christ in Revelation, which is to live victoriously as overcomers of sin, the world, and the devil, and to remain faithful to him at all costs, because he will make all things right in the end. Whatever view one thinks best reflects the teaching of Scripture, it must always be kept in mind that Scripture always presents the doctrine of last things as a motivation for faithful living. In the end, perhaps John Frame draws our attention to the most important eschatological point. Quote, So far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. I've been saying that since week one, right? And I hope that burden has been shared all throughout. You'll remember my seven points that I started with at the beginning. The second one was that you were going to be disappointed with me. I can't remember where I put it. Oh, there it is. Expect to be disappointed with me. And one of them had to do with, especially if, if your expectation is elaborate prophecy charts. I think of Pastor John Hagee in San Antonio who often preaches on eschatology with elaborate prophecy charts behind and almost surrounding him. While I certainly, and this, is, this is what I said way back then, while I certainly have some interest in those sorts of things, my burden is not to unlock the timing, order, and exact nature of all future events. My burden is your perseverance and mine in faith, no matter what hardships may come our way. I said that you would be disappointed in my interpretations. I said, no doubt you probably disagree with some point of interpretation in all of my sermons, whether it's from Nehemiah or 1 Peter or Ephesians or whatever. But I suspect that could be on hyperdrive in the book of Revelation. And that I've thought at the beginning of every sermon I ought to say, I want to note at the beginning, many if not all of you are bound to disagree with my interpretation on one or many or all points this morning. Please remember that I affirm very clearly that life in this age will be difficult. 
that we believers must persevere in faith, that Jesus Christ is coming again in power and glory, that unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire, and believers will enjoy life in God's presence in the new heaven and new earth forever and forever. And then I tried to encourage us to be discerning with our dogmatism. When the Bible is clear, let's be dogmatic. The second coming of Jesus, life everlasting for the saved and the unsaved. Ah-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, pan-mill, if you believe the Bible, you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back and that the saved will be with him forever and the unsaved will be separated from him forever. Let's be dogmatic about those things. Let's study up on the others, have our friendly debates, be charitable, and wait for it all to pan out in the end. One little book I've been reading as I've studied through this is called Jesus Wins. Amen? Jesus Wins. Maybe you're here today and you don't have the assurance that should you die today, tomorrow, before the Lord returns, or you don't have the assurance that should Jesus Christ return before you die, that you will spend eternity with Him. There's good news. The good news is that though you have sinned against God and your sin separates you from God, and you can't do anything to earn his favor or make it right, God has done it all. God has done it all. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners, to live a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly Father that you and I could not live, and then to die upon a cross to take upon himself the wrath of God, a death that none of us wants to die. He absorbed in himself the wrath of God meant for sinners like you and me. He died in our place and for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead. And he is alive right now. And he offers to humble sinners who will come to him for the forgiveness of their sins and the leadership of their life, he offers forgiveness and reconciliation to God, adoption into the family of God, the gift of his spirit, and the promise of eternal life. It's found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's a free gift. It's not earned or deserved, but it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in him, today could be your day. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to raise a hand. You've just got to do business with God in the quietness of your own heart and acknowledge 
to yourself and to him. His greatness and glory, your sinfulness that has separated you from him, your inability to fix that problem, but your recognition and your gladness in the fact that he has provided a way for you in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you turn to him and you say, Lord, the best I know how, I take Jesus Christ as my Savior. He'll never disappoint you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so much confusing in the book of Revelation, so much where we scratch our head and we're not real sure. But so much is clear as well. So help us to be able to pick out those nuggets of clarity and hang our lives upon them. Jesus is coming back. He's going to defeat evil, sin, Satan, death forever. And those who are united to him by faith will live forever and forever with him in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Lord, may that thought that Jesus wins strengthen us, encourage us, help us as we persevere day in and day out as we seek to follow Jesus. And any here today who don't know Jesus as their Savior, as their friend, would you draw them right now to turn from themselves and turn to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him find life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.